This is an ABC podcast. Hey, here's a question for you. What does it mean to possess a biological sex? If we have just a binary system where you are either one or the other, that doesn't explain a whole bunch of natural phenomenon that do happen. Into the cauldron of possibility you might throw hormones and chromosomes, the reproductive cells, eggs and sperm, genes, genitalia. But can biological sex be pinned down to any one thing or even two? We have people in the halls of our Congress saying that because there are two biological sexes, that's the end all be all. Nature is very complicated and a diverse thing. And, you know, if we get locked into one particular way of thinking about it, we're going to misunderstand or misattribute certain things to a thing that we are studying. Now, next week on Science Friction, how society talks about biological sex is one thing. Well, it's many, many things, actually, but how biologists define it can be quite another. On the show today, you'll meet a scientist whose exciting work and life bridges these sorts of biological and social questions in profoundly personal ways. I'm Natasha Mitchell and my special guest is Dr Simone Sun, neuroscientist, musician, artist, composer and a trans woman. Simone's just joined the renowned Cold Spring Harbour Laboratory as a postdoctoral researcher after doing her PhD investigating neuroplasticity with New York University's Neuroscience Institute. She's also a Senior Fellow at the Centre for Applied Transgender Studies, which has just launched this year. Simone, it's so good to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for joining me from wonderful Brooklyn. But you didn't grow up in Brooklyn. You grew up in uh, suburban Virginia, I gather. Right. There's a big part of my scientific story that comes from the fact that I grew up in, you know, a pretty... Uh, conservative household. I'm a trans woman, um, so I've I've been transitioning in the past uh, several years. And growing up, I grew up in a very dogmatic religious household. And that kind of internal conflict of, you know, having these uh, feelings and thoughts about my identity and feeling this confusion and trying to find answers for it, I found myself gravitating toward things like science and art to help me try and make sense of that. Um, and so I've just, I've, I feel like I've just continued on in that journey um, as I, you know, like move on in my life. So, I mean, take us back to suburban Virginia and, and to that strict conservative religious household. What did it tell you about you uh, and, and what did it mean for your life, for your, for your growth as little Simone? It was like I had a very set path ahead of me, right? That with these kinds of dogmatic belief structures, you come into the world and you kind of have like this path all set out for you, like a play-by-play that, you know, you'll go through school, you'll go to church, you'll get married, you'll have kids. That kind of belief system doesn't really allow for any kind of exploration of the self. At least in my experience, that's how it was. You know, I had thoughts and questions about my body and how it was changing and how, and the way that I felt I embodied myself in it. And there weren't really any answers that were 
present from, you know, my parents and those in my immediate community. And, you know, I would occasionally account, encounter things in like while learning about science that like really, really stuck with me. One of the first stories that I really felt like it was meaningful as if it had something to say about what I was experiencing was when I learned about uh, sequential hermaphrodites. Some species of fish exhibit what's known as sequential hermaphroditism. Essentially, depending on a set of environmental factors and sort of the social structure of the school of fish that they're in, individuals can actually change their sex. And so there's this phenomenon where if there is like this head male and that male in that population dies, then one of the females will then become a male and then start exhibiting and playing the role of the male reproductive partner in that species. And I thought that that was a very poignant example of just how diverse and complex biology and life is that just couldn't be encompassed or explained by the dogmatic belief system that I had grown up in. When you read that piece of science, that, that wonderful piece of science, what went through your mind at that point as a kid? My, one of my first thoughts was like, wow, this thing we call sex or gender is very complicated. You know, there's a possibility for change. There's a, there's a dynamism to it. And I remember like excitedly going to my parents and it's like, hey, I learned about this today. And they just shrugged it off and ignored it as if it wasn't real. Um, which was very strange to really encounter because it felt so real to me. Somehow, the universe always knew you needed to be a scientist is, is how yeah. you think of it. I mean, I love that in your graduate school application you wrote, I need to know how the universe works. I need to know how I work. The universe needs me to be a scientist. The universe knows me to be a scientist. I need to be and I know I am a scientist. There is nothing else to be. I mean, I'm convinced by that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had this interesting conversation with some people about how science is typically thought of as this like exploration of the external, the external world and trying to decipher, you know, what it's like. And that I found my way into science because I was trying to explain my internal experience the combination of looking both within and without is what helped me come to grow and be a better scientist, to be able to, to figure out how to ask these different kinds of questions, not just of the world, but also of yourself. And it was science that helped you know that you were trans, a transgender non-binary girl and woman. Yeah, absolutely. The more we learn and the more we study biological sex and gender and all of these complicated intertwining factors that become, you know, uh, a thing that we call sex or a thing that we call gender. But that process is what helped me discover that like, oh, I, I'm actually trans. Yeah, I, I'm taking in all of the, you know, sort of personal data facts that I've acquired. You know, I've encountered certain ideas about gender and, you know, the data fits, you know, so to speak. <laughs> so in a sense, science became a refuge, a liberation, a passion, a calling, all the things. Yeah, yeah. You talk about science as being misunderstood as being something that's dogmatic and fixed, and, and uh, but, but in fact, for you, it is fundamentally about kind of 
wrestling with a very plastic world. I mm-hmm. mean, it's fundamentally about questioning convention. Although I would say that science is also steeped in conventions. It runs on conventions right. and there, there's a certain rigidity to its method, which is both it's, it's kind of power, but it's also a weakness, isn't it? You know, it's kind of oxymoronic, the idea of like, you know, a scientific revolution sometimes, right? Because the idea is that science should already have explained something and to have an idea come in and revolutionize things and like change a whole bunch of perspectives seems kind of counterintuitive to how science gets portrayed very often, I think, to the general public. I mean, I find it personally, like pretty damaging, um, especially when it comes to things like, you know, the conversation about trans civil rights, you know, this sentiment of, you know, science is just rock hard truth gets abused, essentially, and appropriated to, I mean, in this case, just deny people uh, civil rights. It's a sort of denial of the porosity and plasticity of of science as a process, an organic Mm -hmm. process that, that needs to be porous to the world around it. Right. It's interesting, the journey that you've been on from childhood where science became a refuge and a liberation and also a a vocation for you, you've kind of come back full circle, haven't you? So now you're embarking on work that is engaging with the way in which biological sex works in our bodies and brains. What are you up to now? Yeah, so I am currently working in a lab that studies how uh, sex hormones change and influence gene expression in neurons in the brain. And so some of the projects that I would like to, that I'm working on and want to uh, better understand is how how the genes get changed by the presence or absence of sex hormones. And so like in the case of like puberty and the developmental timeline, exactly how do hormones contribute to the particular developmental paths that are established in puberty and whether or not that is a immediate consequence of the hormones or is it something that gets set up previously and then that's that's sort of it, right? Like you get locked into a trajectory, but really, in the work that the lab that I'm in has been looking at, there's a story emerging essentially that it's this dynamic process where the developmental trajectories is something that is defined and then redefined by the presence of sex hormones. That science in the lab that you've just joined is intensely personal to you, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I am trans and there is a lot of overlap when it comes to things like, you know, understanding sex hormones. For trans people who are transitioning, you know, sometimes we undergo uh, hormone replacement therapy and that helps us transition into our gender um, away from our sex assigned at birth. And so, you know, it's very interesting to be studying this and then sort of- Living it. Living it and getting this kind of like affirmation of like, oh, we're starting to see this story where, you know, hormones are constantly engaging and uh, helping regulate these sexual characteristics and that my very act of transitioning is an example of that. So it's a suggestion that you, if you do take hormones as part of the transitioning process, it, it then you're changing the environment of your body by taking those hormones and, and in some sense... Does that mean then you literally change what genes get switched on and off? Yeah, it's really exciting to think. I mean, I find it really exciting to think about how me taking 
a set of hormones is altering the genes that are expressed in my brain and understanding the exact mechanisms by which that happens while at the same time knowing that that's a, like that on an experiential level like that that is that seems to be a very useful way of looking at how you know my body works estrogen signaling in the brain acts on a whole set of different kinds of molecular receptors that then interact with the genome or can change some kind of cell physiology and that these different receptors do different and overlapping things and there is this very powerful possibility of looking at drugs that get made that affect only a particular subset of these receptors wow right and how you know if we can tease apart what differences there are between say like regular old estrogen <laughs> and and say one that uh, like activates or represses one particular estrogen receptor um, or a set of them that they could have really powerful implications for you know endocrinology and the health you know for for trans and cis people it's damn it's damn well amazing work and uh i'm assuming that you're taking estrogen as well as part of your transition yeah. process mm-hmm What's that like for you to be working <laughs> at both levels and, and also experiencing this, um, you know, profound hormone and the profound impact that that hormone has yeah, on your own biology as you <laughs> investigate it or start investigating yeah, it's, it? Yeah, it's pretty wild. <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> yeah, it seems to be a continuation of this, you know, sort of quest I have, I guess, to uh, understand how I work. And how, you know, the external world works. I'm taking estrogen. It, it helps me live my life healthily and happily. And at the same time, I'm learning to understand how, you know, estrogen can change living biology. You are also affiliated with the Centre for Applied Transgender Studies. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in your thoughts on how important is it to have trans people doing and driving science, not only being the subjects of it. Right. Yeah. Um, this is a pretty, I think, difficult topic because at least historically, mm. the oppression of trans people in our society has been you know, pretty rampant and very damaging to our community. And one of the most visible consequences of this exclusion of trans people from the scientific process of studying things that are important to our lived experience, you know, has led science down some unsavory routes. Like there is a very, very real link between a lot of eugenicist thought that is tied into the way that scientists studied things like gender, sex, and race. And that mm. without the people who, you know, were purportedly the subjects of these studies, being able to interpret and look at the data and to, like, be a part of that process as opposed to be just the subject of it, I think set us back in terms of, you know, human progress, that eugenics was this idea and still is an idea that gets toyed around with as if that because we understand a part of how genes work, that we can now place value judgments on these kinds of natural processes, you know, like which genes are better, so to speak. And that right there is just one of the most profound examples of just how important it is to have, you know, any person of 
and people of many different kinds and of different perspectives participating in the scientific process. It's very delicate terrain, isn't it? Because yeah. if you're looking at the genetics of behaviour and body, that can both be incredibly illuminating. What hormones can I take? What genes get switched on and off? How does life experience change what genes get expressed and what don't? You know, that's powerful knowledge. It has mm -hmm. incredible power. But on the other hand, it can be misinterpreted and misused as a sort to tell a sort of a deterministic story, can't it, about mm -hmm. what life is normal, what life is abnormal. You know, there's, right. a, there's a, a history of pain and grief and in some cases profound persecution because of the yeah. genetic story of, of the human body. Right. And I think something that has sort of gotten lost in the discussion of like, how do we think about science is almost this pervasive idea that somehow science is about describing the norm or like just the average, you know, mm. science isn't about like taking the average and saying like, this is how nature works, but rather looking at the distribution of characteristics and phenomena and trying to explain all of these different, you know, possibilities because they're real and they're right in front of us. You know, like when this idea of uh, eugenics or like taking this idea of uh, genetic determinism sort of blinded us to any sort of other possibility, saying that this that the most simplistic form is is the end all be all is, I mean, quite frankly, in my opinion, the opposite of science. Yeah, I mean, let's give people a, a sort of tangible sense of how some of these narratives have played out. I mean, you've you've been living through a period of American politics where where trans kids and teens and adults, trans lives, trans bodies have been used as pawns mm -hmm. and, and have been politicised in the most horrific and ugly ways. And to what extent have you seen science used or misused to fuel that ugliness? Yeah, we have people in the halls of our Congress saying that because there are two biological sexes, that's the end-all be-all, and that any deviation from that is unnatural or unacceptable or should be valued less, as if because there is male and female, that means that trans people, you know, like essentially shouldn't be treated as humans, you know? And it's, it's so frustrating because, one, it does trans people a disservice and it also does the science a disservice because the science is showing us just how complex and dynamic these things are and that's a part of how the science becomes useful how we come up with new medical treatments it's or trying to better understand different kinds of conditions that we have that this reductionism is being used as a bludgeon to keep trans people from essentially getting the health care that they need or getting the care and affirmation that they should have as people. So when you watch that public discourse unfold as a biologist, as a neuroscientist, as a trans woman, what do you feel? <laughs> Mostly anger. <laughs> rage, yeah. Um, rage and frustration, you know, as if my trans identity delegitimizes my science, you know, like I, I feel even on a personal level that I've been accused of not being a good scientist because of my identity, which I find to be absolutely absurd, you know, like isn't <laughs> like, haven't we already learned that this isn't how 
it works and that this is actually the bad way of thinking about things, um, just to be simplistic about it. I mean, that's a that's a profound accusation, isn't it? To tell a scientist that because they are in the skin of a particular self, that that somehow Mm -hmm. will compromise your capacity to be objective about the work that you're doing. I mean, that's 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 the accusation they're making, isn't it? That that right, well, you've got right. a lived experience of something that you want to study. Well, that's a problem. Do you see it as a problem? I I don't think it's a problem. I actually think it's illuminating. Uh, it gives me a perspective that I think is unique to the particular field of study that I am in, and how that can better enable the science to get be better, to have a better understanding of this. If my identity is being dismissed as something as as delusional and unreal and not objective, we can't benefit from any kind of knowledge that could come of knowing that trans people exist. And it's very similar, I think, historically in terms of, you know, like race science. There there are a lot of similar lines of thought I or lines of thinking I find in these kinds of like societal discourses that we're having. And there's a growing momentum, isn't there? And a movement of queer scientists too, who are really mm-hmm. out and proud and present. And I wonder how you view that movement. You're part of that movement. Do you see it changing the culture of science? I, I hope so. Uh, I feel like it is in certain ways. We're making science more diverse, more equitable, more inclusive, you know, and that, that that's how we can make progress on these kinds of things. You're a scientist, you're a neuroscientist, you're a musician, mm-hmm. you're a visual artist, you're a writer, uh, you're, you're all the things all at once. And it's interesting, isn't it? You know, we, we often grow up being kind of boxed, don't we? We, get, yeah. we, we can kind of get boxed into one discipline or one way of thinking, art or maths or art and, or science, and never the twain shall meet. You right. somehow have managed to embody all yourselves. <laughs> yeah, I was lucky enough to go to a liberal arts college. So I doubled majored in science and music. And when it comes to things like art, I found that Art was about this process of creating something that helped express an idea that you have to an audience. That's also what science is doing. Science is trying to figure out what ideas help us better understand the world and to communicate them and to use them to better the world. And so that similarity really helped me be better in both of those things. And like, I take a lot of inspiration of my music from the scientific work that I do, and vice versa. I want to create music from an idea. And so like, I I turn to my scientific inquiries, like looking at the data that I used and trying to see if there's a way to sort of express that phenomenon in a musical form, right? And I'm not saying that like, you know, the act of making the music is a part of dissecting the data, but rather that the way of thinking about how you take something and make it communicable is a similar process in both science and music. 
But I mean, we should just give people a sense. You're re-expressing essentially recordings that you're taking from single neurons, aren't you? So you're, mm-hmm. you're looking at the synaptic connections between neurons. Yes. You're taking that data, you're re-expressing it through composing music based on yeah. neuronal data. It's kind of a yeah. form of, of sonification. I take certain parameters of my data and I assign them to particular notes. Depending on when something happens in the data, depends on when it happens in the song. And that idea of this melody not existing and only existing because I imposed a structure on it, I found to be like pretty informative of like the experience of doing science, of doing experiments. That I'm imposing some kind of framework for data to emerge in order to help me understand the thing that I'm studying. You know, in the scientific case, I'm like putting neurons in a dish and I'm treating them with a particular treatment such that, you know, they change their activity patterns. And that's imposed, that I'm imposing that on the neuron in order to better understand what the neuron is doing. In some sense, it's a, it, the experiment is a composition in its own way. Right, exactly, exactly, mm. yeah. I love that. I love that idea. It's such an exciting time to be in the the field that you're in, isn't it? Seems like it, at least for me. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It's been just a delight to, to talk to you. It's been great. Thank you for having me. And Dr. Simone Sun from Cold Spring Harbour Laboratory in New York is back with me next week along with other guests. And we're asking, what is biological sex? It is so fascinating. Talk to me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell or you can email us from the Science Friction website. Tell your friends about the podcast. And big thanks to Joe Kahn and Matthew Crawford this week. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.